As liberals celebrate the 40th anniversary of the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, many Canadians are wondering, if the Charter couldn't protect our freedoms during COVID, then what is it good for? I'm Kenneth Malcolm, and this is The Kenneth Malcolm Show. everyone. Thank you so much for tuning into the podcast. So as you probably saw, there was a lot in the media last week about the Charter of Rights and Freedoms celebrating the Charter, uh, acting as if that was the creation of Canada, as if Canada didn't have a constitution prior to it, as if Canada wasn't really a country uh, prior to it. Liberals love to hold up the Charter as the sort of golden point of, of Canadian government and, and, and why we have our very freedoms. It was signed into law about 40 years ago, 40 years ago in mid-April. So liberals over at the Globe and Mail celebrated this. They had a piece saying Canada's charter turned 40 on Sunday, and it's still as radical and enigmatic as it was back in 1982. Well, the charter is supposed to protect Canadians' individual rights and freedoms against excessive government force and laws that do not respect our individual dignity and our individual liberty. But as we all experienced during COVID, heavy-handed government edicts routinely appended our most basic human rights. Our religious freedoms were not upheld, as Section 2 is supposed to guarantee. Pastors and church ministers were arrested and jailed for the crime of holding a church service. Well, meanwhile, up the street, uh, Costco and Walmart and big box stores were allowed to stay open with no harassment from the government whatsoever. Also in Section 2 of the Beloved Charter, it lists fundamental freedoms like our right to free speech, to freedom of assembly, to press freedoms, which of course were all violated by Justin Trudeau and his Emergencies Act, which disproportionately used force against peaceful protesters. The Charter is supposed to protect our mobility rights. Let me just read from Section 6. Every citizen of Canada has the right to enter, remain in, and leave Canada rights to move and gain livelihood. So every every Canadian has the right to move to or take up residence in any province and to pursue the gaining of a livelihood in any province. Now, of course, it has not been the case in Canada for over two years now. So many Canadians are still today barred from travel. They can't even flee the country if they wanted to. So today I want to talk more about the Charter and its many failings. And to do so, to help me do so, is our friend John Carpe. John Carpe is the founder and president of the Justice Centre for Constitutional Freedoms, which was formed as a voice for freedom in Canada's courtroom. John has received the Pyramid Award for Ideas in Public Policy and recognition for his work in constitutional advocacy. The Justice Centre's mission is to defend constitutional freedoms for Canadians through litigation and education. John has devoted his entire legal career to defending constitutional freedoms through litigation and education by resisting the unjust demands of intolerant government authorities. So John, thank you so much for joining the program. Glad to be with you, Candace. Okay, so let's just ask the basic question. Why didn't the Charter protect our freedoms during COVID? Two reasons come to mind immediately. One is that Canada has too few courts, too few judges, and so it, it always takes years for important issues to get a court ruling compared to the United States, where they seem to get court rulings on very significant uh, you know, lockdown measures, uh, masks, quarantines, uh, all kinds of issues, and, and they, they get their rulings in, in weeks or sometimes months. And in, in Canada, it, it, it's never in weeks or, or months. It, it always takes years. And that's a problem when you, you've got governments 
violating our rights and freedoms. We are into the 25th month, 26th month. Uh, the, the hardest part about the uh, two weeks to flatten the curve has been the first two years. And we don't have too many court rulings yet. We have one in Manitoba and the other ones are, are moving through uh, at the pace of, of molasses in February. So that's one big problem. The second problem is that the charter section one gives uh, governments the possibility of going to court and concocting uh, justification for violating rights and freedoms. And if that aligns well with uh, the judge and if the judge is persuaded then uh, the judge will say, well, yes, okay, this law did violate religious freedom or freedom of association, freedom of peaceful assembly, or this law does violate your right to bodily autonomy to decide for yourself what gets in injected into your body or not. But that's okay because the judge thinks that it's reasonable. And so we've got this, uh, we've got this section one of the charter that allows governments to, to violate our freedoms if they can persuade a judge and then it's really the luck of the draw. I mean, do you get a do you land before a judge who really uh, understands and appreciates fundamental freedoms, who actually demands that the government come forward with persuasive evidence, not just speculation and modeling and, and, and fear mongering, or uh, do you get a judge who's more pro government and those judges exist as well? Well, it seems like there's a lot more of the pro-government judges, from my perspective. It seems like a lot of the judges make their ruling based on their own views uh, rather than being tied to the sort of basic principles of protecting individual rights and freedoms. So, John, why was the Section 1 put into the Charter if, if, if the whole purpose of the Charter was as an addition to our Constitution to make sure that, that federal government couldn't overreach and that individual rights were protected, if judges were just going to interpret uh, the law based on, well, the government was just trying to do its best or, or I agree with these rules and so I'm not going to overturn it. I mean, what, what, why was that placed in and what good is a Charter with that in there? Well, people were warned in 1982, uh, people that looked at the Charter closely said, hey, wait a minute, uh, this is going to give unelected, unaccountable judges a lot of power to make rules about our laws. And it's going to give this, this new legislative power to judges that they've not had before. And this kind of fell on deaf ears. You know, Pierre Elliott Trudeau, at the time, there was uh, television advertisements with, uh, you know, geese flying across the, the, the sky. And this is Canada's chance to bring the Constitution home from Britain. And there was not a lot of debate on this question of, you know, do, do we want a, a charter that gives judges the power to strike down laws? Now, more specifically, you ask about Section 1, and I would venture a guess that it was put in there to have some kind of a mechanism uh, to recognize that rights are not absolute. And so the wording of section one is that um, the charter guarantees rights and freedoms uh, subject to reasonable limits prescribed by law that can be demonstrably justified in a free and democratic society. Now it sounds good, uh, so any violation of your uh, freedom of speech, freedom of religion has to be reasonable. Uh, and the onus is on the government to justify it demonstrably. It sounds good, uh, but it does give a lot of latitude to, uh, to judges. 
Well, that's that's unfortunate. I, I want to ask you because you mentioned that there was one case that made its way through in Manitoba. Uh, can you, off the top of your head, I don't know if you can, can you tell us a little bit about what that case is and which rights it seeks to protect? So we had the Justice Center acted for uh, some individuals and churches in the province of Manitoba. We took the lockdown measures to court. We brought forward um, medical doctors, uh, other scientists. We had Dr. Jay Bhattacharya from uh, Stanford, uh, Stanford University in, in um, uh, California, world-renowned scientist and one of the co-authors of the Great Barrington Declaration. We had other medical witnesses, and we put forward very persuasive evidence as to um, the harm of, of lockdowns and questioning whether lockdowns were saving lives. We put forward the medical and scientific evidence, and the judge ruled against us and upheld all of these government measures but didn't really do a, a deep probing analysis of that evidence, but said, well, in times of crisis, we really should just kind of defer to government. And it wasn't the uh, deep and engaging type of analysis that we would have wanted. And so we have appealed this to the uh, Manitoba Court of Appeal. And uh, we'll see if we do better at that level. Well, good for you. And I'm, I'm curious as to why Manitoba was the place that you chose, because I, I saw that the JCCF put out a ranking of the worst charter violators among the provinces. It seems like, well, I, I can ask you uh, for more details on this, but it goes uh, Quebec number one, British Columbia number two, Manitoba was number three. So maybe you could tell us a little bit about this list and then why specifically you chose to do the legislation in or do the court case in Manitoba. So when you're able to launch a constitutional challenge, it's often a constellation of different factors, like having willing clients, having a, a good fact scenario that's going to put your clients into the best light. Um, so it was just kind of the, the convergence of, of various circumstances. It wasn't that we really looked at Manitoba and, and said, well, we, we want to do Manitoba, you know, before we, we do other provinces. It's more like it just came together there first. Uh, but we also have litigation uh, against lockdowns or against vaccine passports or both in BC, Alberta, Saskatchewan, Ontario. Um, and it's only recently that we've got a full-time lawyer in Quebec. And so we are hoping to do more, more litigation there as well, but have not been in, in the past not as much. So, so, well, that's great. Congratulations on getting someone in Quebec. John, why don't you tell us about the ranking, though? Uh, what was it that made Quebec uh, the worst offender during COVID? Because I, I think you could talk to people in just about any province, and they would think that their province was the worst. I know I spent a bunch of time in Ontario during the lockdowns, and it was horrible there. There, Alberta's been bad, people complaining. Um, I mean, most of my family's out in British Columbia, including some unvaccinated uh, family members who've basically been housebound because they can't go places. And, uh, you know, ev everyone probably feels like they are in the worst place. So, so how did you come about um, this ranking and, and why was it that you deemed Quebec to be the worst? So the, these assessments are somewhat subjective. Um, so you know, somebody else could come along with a different ranking and it's not a mathematical equation. It's not a science, but we thought Quebec was the worst when you looked at uh, the, the curfews, which I think Quebec was the only province that had those utterly unscientific. The politicians themselves when asked, you know, are curfews going to save lives? And they said, well, we don't know, but just this fanatical 
obsession that, you know, if it might help just a little bit, let's just violate people's rights and freedoms, even if we have no idea if it's going to help save lives. We'll do it anyway, just in case it might help. That seems to be the attitude there. Um, so they had curfews. They closed the border with Ontario, which is violation of the charter mobility rights. They uh, had restrictions on travel within Quebec, depending on whether it was uh, an orange or red or green zone. Um, they were the, the only province that was took it upon where the government actually thought so highly of itself that it could dictate who does and who does not come into a house of worship. Blatant violation of religious freedom where instead of the mosque, the synagogue, the church, making its own decision about its own house of worship as to who is able to come in or not, the Quebec government said, if somebody's not had the COVID shots, they are not to come into the house of worship. So they basically usurped the uh, legitimate civil authority of, of um, like private authority of houses of worship to practice their religious freedom by deciding, you know, who comes into the mosque, who does not. And based on what criteria, the government stepped in and, and told the houses of worship, uh, everybody has to be vaccinated. Um, no other province did that on a province by basis. Although British Columbia did that for uh, one of its health regions, the, uh, uh, th there's one health region in the North that, that tried the same thing. Uh, other provinces violated religious freedom less severely. Um, British Columbia did close houses of worship entirely for a year and two months, which was uh, puts it up right behind Quebec. Um, but to finish off on, on, on Quebec, it's just the, the, the combination of uh, curfews and telling houses of worship who is or is not allowed to attend uh, all the travel restrictions and then all the other lockdowns and raising the possibility uh, as a serious item for that Premier Legault said, we're going to impose a tax on people that have not had two COVID shots and we're gonna bar these people from grocery stores. Now, the government backed down, may have been related to a warning letter received from the Justice Center and from our Quebec lawyer, I don't know. They backed down, but the very fact that the Quebec government would actually seriously consider and, and announce that they were definitely going to impose a tax on people based on vaccination status uh, just and last very last point on Quebec they still have mask mandates uh, the only place in Canada probably the only place in North America where you have to wear a mask uh, when you're in uh, uh, public spaces it's it's really remarkable that we are still living in this sort of dystopian nightmare John there's been a lot of discussion recently about the sort of robustness of our institutions the strength um, of our ability to sort of move on from COVID you wrote in a recent op-ed with the JCCF you compared communism to Canada's pandemic response you said the utopian goal of communism and the utopian goal of a world with no COVID both ideologies have used the same uh, have been used the same way to trample human rights and constitutional freedoms uh, I'm, I'm wondering like when, when you hear for instance uh, conservative politicians say that Trudeau's act like a dictator and then the response from the Laurentian elites in the media is just to absolutely clutch their pearls and say how dare you say something like that about Trudeau um, but yeah at the same time we've lived through two years of, of just heavy-handed you know really really intensive government overreach 
yeah, I, I wonder if you could kind of elaborate on your comparison of, of communism to our COVID reaction and, and then speak more broadly about the robustness of Canada to withstand these kind of uh, emergencies that, that take two years to trample on our rights. And, you know, we're still we're still not completely out of the woods. So governments never take your rights and freedoms away uh, without proffering a good pretext or a nice sounding excuse. So dictators need an enemy. Who could be the enemy? Well, it could be, uh, let's look at uh, communist Russia, 1917, right on through to uh, 1991. The enemy is uh, capitalism, capitalists, wealthy landowners, people that oppress the workers, they are the enemy. So in order to fight the enemy and build our socialist utopia, we have to take away your freedom of speech, your freedom of religion, your parental rights to raise your own children as you deem best, uh, your freedom of association, your freedom of peaceful assembly. We're taking away all your rights and freedoms, but it's for your own good because we got these evil capitalists and aristocrats and landowners and factory owners that are oppressing the proletariat. So we have to fight the bad guys. Therefore, we need to take away your rights and freedoms. Now, that's a dictator's playbook. It's over and over again. Adolf Hitler in Germany said, you have to be very afraid of the communists and the Jews. And so we got to protect Germany from Jews and communists. So we're going to take all your rights and freedoms away. And that's exactly what the Nazis did. As soon as they came to power, uh, freedom of speech, freedom of association, freedom of peaceful assembly, uh, the full freedom of, of, of uh, religion, um, mobility rights, everything was taken away. And a lot of people supported it, sadly. That's another thing about uh, the dictators. Another example would be some, uh, you know, right-wing uh, military dictatorships in Latin America. Who do they say the enemy is? The enemy is the communists. So we got to protect you from communists. Therefore, we're going to take away your, your rights and freedoms, and we're going to lock you up in prison and torture you, and we're going to have death squads, all in the name of fighting communism. Right? The governments have committed horrible atrocities in the name of fighting communism. Uh, you've got Idi Amin in Uganda, in East Africa, uh, over 300,000 citizens murdered. And he went after the Asian minority. The 1% of Ugandans were East Indians. And he forced them all out of the country. Uh, many of them came to Canada. So now it's the same playbook. Uh, the enemy is is not, uh, you know, communism or capitalism or terrorism. Uh, the enemy is COVID. And uh, that extends to people that don't want to take the vaccine, whom our prime minister has described as uh, anti-science, misogynist, extremist, racist. Uh, should we tolerate these people? You have that kind of demonization of a minority. And so people who don't see the playbook, I think, are probably just ignorant of history because it's the same thing. When governments take away your rights and freedoms, they will create an enemy uh, and they will uh, proffer a, a nice sounding excuse for taking away your rights and freedoms. Well, it's so interesting to see, because I think you're completely right in your assessment of what is going on. And yet, John, so many of the people who are doing just what you say or excusing someone like Justin Trudeau and doing that were the same people who were out last week, you know, banging the drum of Canadiana, saying how wonderful and enigmatic our, our charter is. Uh, almost like 
ignorant of what's in the charter and what the charter was designed to do and what the charter was designed to respect. So why is it that we have people who call themselves liberal, call themselves liberals, used to wrap themselves in the charter, um, who are the ones out there doing that? And, and, and we saw it clear as day during the trucker convoy when Justin Trudeau came out on day one after being in hiding and, and having COVID and whatever else was going on with him, uh, saying, these people are Nazis. Uh, you know, these truckers are Nazis. So, so if you're standing with them, you're standing with people waving swastikas. Uh, like, like what is, why, why don't they have the self-awareness? Why don't they understand, uh, the, you know, what the purpose of the charter is and what the meaning of the term liberty is? Uh, how, how do they square that uh, circle? And, and why, why the hypocrisy? Why the lack of self-awareness? Well, anything I say will be speculation, but I think there's a lot of inertia uh, on the part of the, the so-called mainstream media, uh, not just the CBC, but, but other media are getting government funding now, uh, you know, everything from, from television stations to, to newspapers. And he who pays the piper calls the tune. And so you've got government-funded media who are preaching and proclaiming and promoting the government's narrative on COVID, on uh, treatments for COVID, on lockdowns, on vaccines, everything in the past two years, uh, we've had the mainstream media kind of beating the government's drum, uh, promoting fear, uh, suggesting falsely that COVID is as dangerous as the Spanish flu of 1918. Um, following the government's line on claiming that there are absolutely no cures or treatments for COVID whatsoever, uh, proclaiming this message that lockdowns are saving lives, uh, that lockdowns are doing more good than harm, uh, preaching the gospel on the vaccines that they are safe and effective. The media have been cheerleaders. Now, fortunately, they are losing credibility every day as more and more people are just tuning out and more and more people are getting their news from, you know, their, their friends, their, their colleagues, their uh, whatever streams, uh, but, but they're not getting the media from uh, the six o'clock news the way that Canadians were uh, 40 or 50 years ago. So I think that there's a bit of a bubble there and there's a disconnect. And for Canadians that were not on the ground in Ottawa, uh, it was the, the mainstream media uh, did push this message that these truckers were dangerous, violent criminals. And sadly, I think that message has probably sunk in to the minds of, uh, of at least some Canadians, hopefully not too many. I, I agree with you that more and more people are tuning out, getting their news directly from the source. That was one of the great things that we saw during the convoy was that a lot of Canadians were just streaming videos themselves. You know, there were these viral videos going uh, everywhere on TikTok and Instagram with millions of views, uh, particularly when young Canadians on those platforms. But I think even older Canadians, you know, rather than going to the CBC, they might get their news directly from you know, the JCCF or True North or, or some alternative. So th th there is some hope. I, I want to ask you again, though, about Canada's institutions. Like, do you think we're in a good shape as a country? Uh, wh what do you think of the Charter at 40? What do you think of the broader constitutional structure? How can we make these institutions more robust? Uh, what needs to be done? Boy, that's that's a very big question. We're in bad shape. We have a, we have a breakdown in the rule of law. It was just striking and disgusting to see how the difference uh, in 24 months 
uh, between the Aboriginal and environmentalist protesters in February and March of 2020. So right around the time that, that COVID was starting to become an issue, uh, we had people blockading railway lines, uh, making it impossible for ships in Halifax and Vancouver to unload. And the cause they were fighting for was it was anti-pipeline uh, in the name of uh, traditional Aboriginal territory, even though the elected chiefs in those areas were uh, pro-pipeline and were looking forward to you know, the job creation and getting their 80% unemployment rates, which you see on some reserves, getting that down and getting people working. But in the name of Aboriginal rights, in the name of the environment, in the name of you know, anti-pipelines, we had these protesters that blockaded railway lines in Canada and the prime minister's response was to negotiate and to say, oh, we have to be patient, even though that was definitely criminal conduct uh, to, to blockade a railway line, to blockade a highway and, and prevent any traffic, not just slowing down traffic, but an outright prohibition on, on train travel. So then fast forward to 2021, uh, we've got vandals in Manitoba at the legislature uh, tearing down and vandalizing a statue of Queen Victoria, which is criminal conduct, and police just stand by and watch. And then we get the truckers in Ottawa, uh, not a single trucker charged with any crime in the first three weeks that they're there, which tells you just how not illegal their behavior was when there wasn't a single criminal charge. So there's no charges laid, no arrests made. And then you get this crackdown where the prime minister uh, imposes martial law on the country, uh, the Emergencies Act, and declares a national emergency. And next thing you know, we've got police horses uh, trampling women. You've got unarmed protesters getting beaten by police clubs. And you get this aggressive physical repression of a peaceful protest. So the double standard is glaring. Uh, that where we're at in Canada is that if you're demonstrating for a cause that the prime minister is sympathetic to, even if you're blatantly breaking the law, you're not going to get in trouble. Conversely, if you're protesting for a cause that the prime minister disagrees with, like our charter rights and freedoms uh, that have been taken away from us the past two years, well, then we're going to have a ruthless physical suppression of peaceful protest. That double standard is a violation of the rule of law, and it's very, very scary. Well, and you forgot in there that uh, during the very, very beginning of the pandemic, right when we, you know, no one really knew what it was and, 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 and everyone was told to just stay inside to, to, to avoid catching this thing, um, all of a sudden we had a American-inspired Black Lives Rally movement that swept across Canada, even though it had nothing to do with our history or our justice system or our policing. Um, and the prime minister himself went out to that protest right in you know, spring of 2020 when COVID was brand new. And then you had a bunch of epidemiologists and doctors saying that uh, fighting against racism was was so uh, righteous and, and just that you couldn't catch COVID <laughs> from, from getting it. So, you know, we've had we've had those contradictions for a long, long time. John, it's not a healthy society when, you know, you have a prime minister who routinely breaks ethics rules and, you know, gets a slap on the wrist and gets to continue on. It's not a healthy society, uh, what, what you just described. So I, I just had a final question for you here. You know, we talked a little bit about how most of the restrictions are lifted, but they're not all lifted, particularly 
Uh, there's still many restraints on people who are unvaccinated. Um, further lockdowns are looming. We never know when they're just going to get brought back in. It seems like the provincial power, the provincial government doesn't want to let go of those powers just yet. So uh, what what is the JCCF doing to protect us going forward? And and how can Canadians um, ensure that our, that our rights are protected and that this doesn't just keep happening again and again and again? Well, we've got court actions across the country but I've often said that the uh, winning in the battle, uh, winning in the court of public opinion is even more important than winning in the court of law, because if public opinion changes and people recognize how harmful and destructive and how utterly unscientific these measures are and, and have been, when that public opinion changes, you're going to see change in the law. So the best thing that people can do is to try as much as possible to be in dialogue with others. Um, you know, some people, you got people on both extremes that you can't talk to. I mean, some people, they're just 100% pro-lockdown. They don't want to hear anything. Uh, they completely buy, buy into the government and, and media narrative. And there's other people, uh, you know, equally passionate on the other side that, that uh, are not going to be persuaded that, that lockdowns were good. But uh, there are people in the middle that are not firmly decided either way. Those are the people that need to be reached. So people can, uh, you know, hand out brochures. Uh, the Justice Center has, has mailed out hundreds of thousands of brochures to people that will get a pack of 50 or 100, put them in the mailboxes of their neighbors. If anybody wants to do that, contact info at jccf.ca ask for brochures about our charter rights and freedoms and, and the problems with the vaccine passport, those kinds of things. Give out brochures to people, but do the heavy lifting, do the hard work of persuading people that are in the middle, that are open to being persuaded. Because the way out of this, uh, unfortunately, it's just gonna be a lot of hard work to change public opinion. And apart from that, I think we're, uh, the repression is going to continue if we don't change public opinion. Well, I, th I think that certainly with the trucker convoy, there was a little bit of optimism and good good news there because the fact that the truckers went out there, you know, they were greeted on the side of highways in minus 30 degree weather um, by families and people waving Canadian flags. And many, many people did rally around those truckers. Many more appreciated them silently at home or quietly. And you're hearing more and more of that. So, uh, you know, definitely the truckers changed the, the tone. And I think that the work that the JCCF does is incredibly important in in pushing back against just out of control government overreach and activism. So, John, we really appreciate what you do. Thanks for your time and coming on the show. And we hope to have you back again soon. Thanks so much for the invitation. Right. That's John Carpe of the Justice Center for Constitutional Freedoms. You can check out their website at jccf.ca. I'm Candace Malcolm, and this is The Candace Malcolm Show.